0: And welcome back to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, here with a really special guest who I'll introduce in just a second. We are on Playmaker Mentality. We are on iTunes, and every single week we talk about sports, society, and stuff, talking about all the things happening in the world. And as I said before, I am really, really excited about my guest tonight. A few weeks ago, I was talking about how pumped I was to meet people from all around the industry, and I have found a great sports writer who has a ton of experience, uh, who's going to lend her expertise, and we're going to discuss the Combine this week, we're going to discuss a lot of other important topics for young aspiring sports writers, and then just generally talk about what happened with the Oscars. Uh, and overall, let's just get this party started, because I'm just really, really pumped to say that Andrea Hanks is on with us tonight. Andrea, why don't you introduce yourself to the people and tell them where they can find you and who you're writing for right now? Sure.
1: Uh, so I'm Andrea Hanks. Uh, I'm the guest this week. Thank you for having me, of course, Ethan. I really appreciate that. Um, I currently uh, cover the National Football League for SportsOnEarth.com and comeback.com and also the Cleveland Browns for Scout.com. Uh, and then I used to, for about five, for the last five NFL seasons, uh, serve basically as the AFC North lead writer over at Bleacher Report, um, and I also host the F Ball NFL podcast, which you can find via iTunes or Stitcher or at Podomatic.com.
0: Check out that podcast because I was listening to a break for the show, and it's really good. So you you should definitely check that podcast out as well. All of us independent podcasts have to look out for each other. So I will say, just as a preliminary thing, we talk a lot about football. This is going to be the last football episode for a couple of weeks, and I will get more into on Twitter who we have as guests lined up in the next couple of weeks. But for any listener who loves football, but is like, why doesn't Ethan ever talk about other sports? The other sports are coming, so bide some time. They're coming, trust me. They're going to be really, really good. I'm super excited. But for now, the NFL Combine was this week. We're going to talk about football because we just spent four days watching college students run for us in Under Armour, and there's a lot of takes that have to be gotten off. So, Andrea, starting with who really jumped out to you? in terms of winning the Combine, really proving themselves and showing how they could eventually be stars at the next level.
1: You know, there's a few guys that, that did stand out to me. Um, first and foremost, of course, Florida State's Jalen Ramsey, uh, cornerback who is also capable of playing safety, easily the best defensive back in this draft class. And the Combine only served to further that uh, that belief because he, he looked very good out there. Um, you know, I think, also, you know, just taking a closer look at uh, Alabama running back Derrick Henry because there's a lot of concerns about him because he had so many carries last year. But, again, that was the only year that he really had a heavy workload in college. And I thought he looked great at the combine, uh, very explosive in terms of, you know, he had the, he had a good vertical leap, he had a good broad jump, he, he ran pretty quickly, uh, especially for a guy of his size who was kind of – I believe he was a little bit surprised at how – Completely overweight. Let's say he he ended up being. Um, those guys definitely uh, stood out for me in a good way. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of t- talent in this year's draft. I mean, last year's draft, especially in 2014, if we got kind of spoiled. By the high quality, especially like wide receivers, and, and there was some, some really good depth to be had there. So it's not, let's say, the most special draft class, but there are guys to be had here, and there's some talented guys, and, uh, you know, the, and people who, uh, you know, expected to do well at the combine for the most part did.
0: Definitely agree with you on Jalen Ramsey. He's someone who could be a special safety or cornerback. My cornerback comparison for him is Trumaine Johnson, the guy on the Rams, who took a couple of years to really figure things out. And I think that Ramsey's going to have a tougher transition to cornerback than a lot of people seem to believe he will because you can't just out-athlete people in that position. Receivers will always have an inherent advantage of cornerback. And look at Patrick Peterson. It took him time to grow into that role. Now he's really good, but... It took him more time than people necessarily want to give him credit for. And then on the other side of the coin, Justin Gilbert, yeah. someone quite athletic who just isn't very good and really doesn't show the uh, the willingness to get better. Right. So I definitely am with you on Jalen Ramsey. And another cornerback who jumped out to me was Vernon Hargreaves from Florida. I thought that he would be a little bit less athletic, and when I watched him, the sort of vibe I got from him was that he could translate really quickly and become a good cornerback quickly, but I'm still a little bit scared of how he's going to handle bigger receivers. So that's something that I definitely want to keep an eye out for him.
1: Yeah. The thing with, with cornerbacks, you know, it's, it's among the most difficult position to transition to the NFL and play well uh, quickly, you know, Uh, same as with wide receiver. So that's the thing to keep in mind is that even these top-level guys, these top-level prospects at cornerback, and, and less to a lesser extent safety, safety but still safety, uh, will have a steep learning curve, even if they are uh, considered a top prospect or a can't-miss draft pick. It's just a position that guys have to grow into.
0: I totally agree with that. And you call out Derrick Henry. He's a bit of a polarizing figure. There were people... Before the Combine, I'm not sure if they're still saying it now, but definitely before the Combine, who seem to think that Derrick Henry was a fullback in the NFL. That's not the case. The guy is a legitimate five-star athlete. He's a yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. And I think that his vision's a little bit underrated. He's not Trent Richardson. He's not going to run into blockers every single other play.
1: Right.
0: He's the kind of player who, in some ways reminds me of, and I'm going to get a little bit retro on everyone, but Jamal Lewis, the old Ravens running back, who was able to pull away from guys if he had to, but otherwise could just make plays happen at the line of scrimmage and have the size to get the pile moving forward. He's someone who I really, really like, and he might be a top 10 player in this class for me, and I don't normally say that about running backs, but you touched on how the class does have some talent, I happen to think that it's one of those weird classes where a lot of the talent and the value is going to be later in the draft. Because, to me, there's a clear top tier, and then it falls off a little bit. Just for you, who are the top 5 to 10 players in this draft, or where do you think the elite talent lies in this draft?
1: You know, I think I think the you know everybody's been talking about defensive line uh, being particularly deep in this draft class, and that's true. I mean, it, it's not going to be the kind of thing where you can take a, a more elite type of, of, of guy, uh, you know, like DeForest Buckner or something like that, and say, oh, he can. We can wait on him, and and he can be a second round pick because guys like that are still going to be there's still going to be talented D linemen in the first round. But it is something that if it's not an immediate need for a team where somebody doesn't really jump out to them, or some guy, you know, gets drafted and they can't they can't pick him up because you know he's off the board. Um, you know, you can you can kind of wait until later. Um, you know, the one thing that, that that is kind of curious to me is just the entire quarterback class because I feel like you know this is like the year you know with uh, you know Christian Ponder and and Blaine Gabbert and guys like that where it's like there are teams with needs at quarterback and it's inevitable that. You know, guys, not just, not just, uh, you know, Carson Wentz or, you know, or whatever, uh, are going to go early. There's going to be a lot of other guys, and I don't think that that's a wise choice, but teams get desperate uh, for quarterbacks. So you're going to have guys who are definitely not elite prospects at the position absolutely going in round one, more than just, you know, Goff and Wentz.
0: You know, it's funny because I'm not sure that I agree with that. And this is just based on having seen them all play and also going to Mobile. Now, I agree with you. I think Carson Wentz is going to get picked very highly. I don't think it's the right choice. To me, in this class, I have a six-man tier at the top of Jalen Ramsey, Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, uh, Sheldon Rankins, a defensive tackle from Louisville, Laramie, Tunsil and Miles Jack. I think that those six are a tier above everyone else from an athletic standpoint. I think that everyone, quarterbacks included, falls under them in some capacity. My thing with Carson Wentz is that teams love him because he doesn't have any off-field issues. It's sort of like Marcus Mariota from last year. He has a 4.0 GPA. He's really athletic. He's super competitive. There's this great moment in Mobile where... Everyone was doing laps to start practice around the practice field, and one started in the back of the pack, and he sprinted to the front. He did not want to be in the back of the pack at any moment. He is a competitive guy. He shows intangible upside, which is valuable, even though a lot of people might poo-poo it. It's nice to have someone who could work on being the best and has that sort of intensity, that self-awareness, and that self-determination to do that. Plus, you have the physical skills, and you can see why teams like the Browns are looking at him at two. Because he has a lot of what teams really value in a quarterback prospect, and there's a lot to work with there. Now, in terms of his tape, it's not as good as people think it is. He played a one-read offense. He barely had to make more than one read. Uh, Whenever he had to do more than that, he looked completely lost. He gets rattled by pressure a lot. He didn't look amazing in senior bowl practices. He floated a lot of passes. He does have a great arm, but occasionally, if anything interferes with it, things can get a little bit awry. He reminds me a little bit right now of Ryan Nassib when he came out from Syracuse, to be honest. I personally wouldn't take him in the first round. I think that second round might be a good spot for him. Because, as I said, he has self-determination, and I think that he can grow into a good player. Uh, but he's going to go in the first, so it's sort of moot point. I think Jared Goff goes in the first, too. He's someone else who I'm not totally in love with. He floats a lot of passes. It reminds me of Sam Bradford coming out of Oklahoma. I think his pocket presence is being overrated. He's the kind of person who, when he faces pressure up the middle at the next level, he's going to step back and let it fly, and he will not get away with those throws because his arm is really bad. Uh he has some concerns that I'm not sure no matter how smart he is and allegedly he's extremely intelligent can necessarily be coached out of him because sometimes a player is a player, especially when you have to watch them dealing with pressure. So personally, my QB one is Pax and Lynch. And okay. I think Pax and Lynch is an interesting litmus test because in my mind, he had every bit as good a combine as Wentz. And I think if you look at it from, and empirical statistic point of view, if you look at it from every perspective, it's strange to me that he's not getting the type of coverage that Wentz is. And in my mind, the issue there, and this is something that I heard about when I was at the Senior Bowl, there are some off-field issues with him that haven't come to right. light yet. Teams are a little bit worried about his commitment to football. Teams are worried about some of his extracurricular activities. So that's something to keep an eye on with Paxton Lynch because if you want to wonder why all of a sudden the media just stopped talking about him, that's a big reason why in my opinion. And also he apparently has some serious shoulder problems. So I think Paxton Lynch will not get drafted in the first round. That's my hot take of the moment because I think that teams are more scared of him than they let on. If he does get drafted, I don't think it's going to be – a team that is necessarily currently at their spot in the first round, I think someone might trade up into the back half and pick him up. That would be my read on that situation. Uh, I mean, there are even there's even buzz that Christian Hackenberg, though, can go in the first round. And Connor that Cook. A
1: mistake. That would be a mistake. Hackenberg, Connor Cook in the first round. I'm not saying that it won't happen because, again, teams go quarterback. They, they go – they're like demented for quarterbacks if they don't have one that they like. And if they want to get a young guy in, you know, it's it's just how we see it in the draft. But I don't see see either of those guys being first-round talents. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to be taken in the first round because it just happens all the time.
0: And the funny thing is that I think that the Texans are going to be an interesting team to watch. Because both Hackenberg and Cook have connections there. Mm -hmm. And I think both may be of the opinion that Houston would be the best landing spot for them. So another... Interesting situation to keep an eye on. Who's one player in this class who you don't think people are talking about right now who really you think should gain more love?
1: Reggie Ragland. I mean, people are talking about him, but they're like – the the furthest – the most I see about Reggie Ragland is, oh, he's going to be one of those late first-round guys that, like, the Patriots or the Packers tend to pick up in, in the first round. But I haven't seen anything beyond that. Okay, late first round, that's Reggie Ragland. And I feel like that is just all people are really saying about him right now. I'm very impressed with him. Um, that's somebody that, um, you know, I, I think teams that have, have struggles, uh, you know, inside and stopping the run, I think that he's going to be a huge and, and, and immediate asset there. And I know that he's not an under-the-radar kind of guy per se, but I feel like all of the discussion about him has been really kind of One
0: note. I agree. People are really harping on his athletic ability. And at the Senior Bowl, he came in a little bit heavy, and he played edge, which I don't think is his position. I think he's a middle linebacker, right? That's where he really belongs. Yeah,
1: I agree.
0: So I'm just a little bit unsure of what that decision was. I think he might have wanted to show his versatility, but to be honest – he got a little bit lucky, because honestly, this year's pass rusher class is a little bit overrated, and I think Noah Spence didn't have a great combine, and in my opinion, his senior bowl, I thought he got outshined by a couple of fairly mediocre players who uh just weren't really impressive when you actually looked at the tape. I think the edge class a little bit overrated after a couple of the top guys, so I don't think it ended up hurting him too much, but... It's only if you imagine him doing that last year when he would have been facing the likes of Bud Dupree and Vic Beasley and Shane Ray, that might have been a little bit more interesting and a little bit more negative on his stock. I personally think that Raglan's going to go in the first rounds. I definitely agree with you. Um, But we will see what happens. I definitely concur that he isn't getting quite the amount of love that maybe he should be. Who are a couple of players you think are getting a little bit too much love outside of the quarterbacks?
1: Outside of the quarterbacks. Um You know, I think um, – well, I mean, definitely the quarterbacks. I am going to say, yes, the quarterbacks, because obviously that's how that goes. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there's a, a lot of kind of obsession over some of these wide receivers. Some of them are very good. You know, Josh Doxon had a really nice combine, and Laquan Treadwell is obviously the best receiver in the draft. But I think that – because of these receiver classes we've had recent years, everybody is like thinking that it's going to be the same this year. And that's just going to be the case every year. And I don't think that that's the situation. I think that there's a, there's talent at respect receiver, but I think that once you get from the guys at the, the top of the list, to so that second tier of guys, I, it's a, it's a pretty steep drop off for me. So I think that, you know, people kind of, you know, hanging their hats on, okay, this receiver we need a receiver this receiver get this receiver uh, you know cool the jets on that a little bit because this is a this is a drastically different receiver class than we've seen past couple of years
0: so would you say that you're a fan of Corey Coleman
1: yes yeah I, I do I do like Corey Coleman I it, it, you know I, I'm 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 spending a lot more time looking at slightly taller receivers is just because I cover the Browns and we don't know what's going to happen yet with Josh Gordon and the rest of their receiving core is kind of on the smaller side. So I've been looking at guys more like Doxon, who was 6'2", and guys like that. But um, I do like him and I think he'll he'll be a contributor somewhere.
0: Yeah, the Browns uh, are interesting because do we really know what's going to happen with Gordon? I doubt for some reason that he'll end up back in Cleveland, right? Is there any chance that happens?
1: 100% chance. If he gets reinstated, he will be in Cleveland. They have his rights and he's making just under, just over $1.6 million this year against the salary cap. Cleveland Browns can afford that. Just hold on to him, make sure, you know, hope for the best, hope that he doesn't get in trouble again. He spent the last year being heavily focused on returning to the field. He's in great shape. Uh, he's taken on some other interests like art and painting and, and things that um, have kept him out of trouble. We haven't heard anything bad about Josh Gordon, um, the Brown, for the exact reasons people would think the Browns would move on from Josh Gordon are the absolute exact reasons that they should hold on to him. He's not a free agent. He's not going to be a free agent for a minute because he'll, he doesn't have enough accrued seasons to get to that point. Um, he's, he gets reinstated, which uh, should happen by the 20th of March. That's 60 days after he... Uh, for reinstatement, and that's, like, the longest it can take. It's how long Roger Goodell has to make the ruling. Um, if he's reinstated, uh, you know, I don't think the Josh Gordon situation is is a Johnny Manziel play situation, which, you know, Hugh Jackson has said that he has zero, zero tolerance for. Completely different situation. And uh, I think Josh Gordon, you know, if, he, if he's if to and he can <laughs> – you know, leave a good impression on Jackson. That's exactly the kind of player Hugh Jackson would love to work with, protect, uh, help him get to be a better player in person. So uh, I feel like if he's reinstated, everybody needs to calm down, uh, fans of 31 other teams, because Josh Gordon's not going anywhere.
0: That's really good to know. I didn't realize that he had all of those new hobbies that he's really getting into. And it does sound like Hugh Jackson would be the perfect coach for him because Hugh Jackson is <laughs> someone who, really, I really like what Cleveland's doing, and I'd be interested to hear your input as well. With hiring Sashi Brown and Paul De Podesta and creating this super team along with Hugh Jackson, I really do think that they have all their bases covered. They have guys who understand how to find inefficiencies in the market managing the book, so they'll know who to pay, they'll know who not to pay, and then you have someone who damn well knows football in Hugh Jackson. He should not have been fired from Oakland when he was originally a head coach. He got
1: caught up in a bad situation in Oakland. That was a bad year. You know, Al Davis died. Uh, Jason Campbell broke his collarbone. They panicked. They made that trade for Carson Palmer. It was just not a good situation.
0: I totally, totally agree, and Now he's going to come to Cleveland. He's going to have a blank slate, and Cleveland has talent. I mean, there are good players on this team. The offense is relatively potent, actually. I think that there's a lot of really nice pieces. I'm excited for Duke Johnson this year. I think he could have a really big season. And then on the defensive side of the ball, it's not perfect, and I think they need to build a little bit more, but there's definitely still talent there. I mean, what is your outlook for the Browns this season as they try to get back on the right foot?
1: You know, obviously the the key is going to see going to be seeing who the quarterback is. Uh, Hugh Jackson has made it very clear that you know they they're going to go after a quarterback probably in the draft, probably in my opinion Carson Wentz, um, but you know it could be Jared Goff. Um, so that's going to be a, a major step there. What happens uh, in free agency with these guys that they're still negotiating with and trying to get signed next week? Um, that's going to be important. Improving that defense, though, is priority number one because, you know, for a couple of years, not not in 2015, but 2013, 2012, 2014, they had one of the best secondaries in the NFL, and that completely fell off last year. Meanwhile, for 18 seasons, essentially, the Browns' have, defense cannot stop the run. And no matter who they add, whether it's Danny Shelton last year or, you know, Craig Robertson years before, and all these different guys that are trying to bring in, Keavis like Mingo, trying to stop the run and it's not working. And so they need to do that. Um, and they need to establish a run game, which, you know, with Jackson as head coach, and we saw what he's put together in Oakland, we saw what he put together in Cincinnati, that that's something that could get off the ground there a little bit. But then again, that weighs in heavily on free agency because we're talking about Alex Mack, the center, just opting out as, as was expected of his contract and may move on and not reset to a different deal with Cleveland, um, and also right tackle Mitchell Schwartz is also a free agent. He looks like he's about to get some big bucks, whether he gets them from Cleveland, still to be determined. So it's possible that we're seeing two new faces on the offensive line, and that's going to have a major effect on everything. Uh, so there's there's a lot that needs to be done there. It's not going to get built in a day, which is going to be interesting to see what happens because uh, Browns owner Jimmy Haslam, doesn't seem like
0: a very patient man definitely concur on the Haslam take just to end off this segment and we talk about the Browns a lot but they're a fascinating team so I'm totally fine talking about them more and I agree with you that I think they're going to go with the quarterback in the top two picks I think it's going to be Wentz probably at this point because Hugh Jackson talked about hand size with Goff and I don't think they want to take a chance on Lynch, even though it sounds like teams in general are sort of souring on him. But with the offensive line, where do you think Cam Irving, their first-round pick last year, fits in there? Because I know that they drafted him, and he seems like he could play any position. Where do you think that he ends up starting the next year?
1: Well, the Browns thought he could play any position, and they had him moving around a lot during training camp and things like that last year. Um but they put him in a guard, uh, because left guard Joel Batonio suffered a season ending ankle injury later in the year, midway point of the year, or so and did not look good. Um Cam Irving is not a guard. <laughs> <laughs> he he's definitely not a guard. It's just not what he's good at. He really need to work on his fundamentals, uh seriously focus on his fundamentals. Uh if he this this offseason needs to gain some weight, he needs to work on his footing. There's just so much that was off about that. Um I would assume if Alex Mack is gone, if, if, you know, he, I mean, he's technically gone now because he has opted out of his deal, but if they don't, which is a possibility, but they could bring him back on another contract. But if they don't, I would imagine that Cam Irving will be the first man in line to be that starting center. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised either if they messed around with him a little bit at right tackle to see if he can step in if Mitchell Schwartz leaves. Um, there's definitely a place for him. This is his best chance right now, this upcoming season, to be a full-time starter somewhere on that line. Um, but he has a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, as a, as a former first-round pick, you don't want to just use a first-round pick on a guy who ends up being a depth offensive lineman for you. But we're going to have to see if he can turn that corner. But I would assume that center would be the most likely landing spot for him uh, if Mac moves on.
0: In college, Cam Irvin really actually jumped out to me as a center. So I would be very interested to see how he would fit in there. Anyway, we're going to move on to the society portion now. And this is a really exciting opportunity because you are a female sports writer, and there are a lot of out there from a more beat writer perspective. I talk about this from Sigmund Bloom. There are some amazing beat reporters. You would be one. Um, Mary Kay Cabot also for Cleveland is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, Josina at ESPN.
1: Browns fans might argue with that point, but. uh. Really? Well,
0: I I personally find her good enough. I know that she is a little bit. I, I think that she receives a lot of blowback because she's a woman in some ways
1: yeah i I would say i would say that that's not incorrect sure
0: because i feel like like what she's doing like she's covering the news and you know maybe her sources are wrong sometimes but i feel like sometimes some of the hate that she gets is a little bit disproportionate compared to other counterparts in the field but that's a whole other conversation that we could maybe get to later on but in general i just want to start off with what made you want to be a sports writer in the first place?
1: Um, well I guess it, it, it goes back to when I was like three years old and started writing and realized that writing was my biggest passion in life and that someday, however improbable it might be, that I could make my living off of writing. And the football component, you know, I grew up in western Pennsylvania. So uh I'm not a Browns fan.
0: Now I know I, what no, team you root for. I, no, I
1: love, I love the Browns. I love my my four years covering the entire AFC North. I I love those four teams so much, just because I know how they they run, <laughs> and it's and and they're all they're all very fascinating organizations. So I I have no biases, but I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, so we all know what that means. Um, but I didn't really care about football the Steelers for a really long time. I mean, I was you know I was a you know a, a punk rock feminist uh, and I still am but I mean I was that's that's what I was doing in high school so obviously I didn't want anything to do with sports or supporting sports you know local my local teams or all of that any of that kind of stuff it wasn't until I, I left for college I went to college in Massachusetts and um realized that I was getting kind of annoyed <laughs> with uh with uh, the sounds around my campus on Sundays in fall because uh everybody's rooting for the Patriots and uh, and then the Patriots that year um, beat the Steelers in the playoffs, ended up going and, and winning the Super Bowl. Um, but I, I just started to care. I don't know. It, it, was, it was leaving my hometown area that made me really start caring about football. And as I got more interested in the Steelers, I got more interested in football as a whole because I was like, I don't want to just watch this one game. I'm not that kind of person – uh, you know, I, I want to watch all of these games. I want to know about all of these teams. I want to know about all of these players, all of these coaches, what's going on. And so that just sort of ramped up over the years, over the years, over the years. And uh, eventually, you know, things just sort of intersected where my passion for writing, my passion for football kind of crossed paths. And then I just uh, ended up with some good opportunities. And so here we are today. And I've been doing this for almost five years full time.
0: That's awesome. I mean, as someone who is currently doing the I'm writing on the side, so to speak, thing, because, you know, I, I have a couple of paid opportunities, but not a lot. And it's definitely inspiring to hear how you really find it for yourself. And I understand how living in Boston, uh, you could begin to get dragged into that craziness because Bostonian fans are quite loud and passionate in all the best ways. Sure. And I totally uh, also concur with your fan of the division thing because I actually – I'm a Patriots fan, like, not surprising, but my first site that I ran was a New York Jets site for a New England Patriots draft. and they are starting their Jets site, I volunteered to run it, and I love the Jets because of it. Like, I definitely have a soft spot for them because I – Learned all about that team, all about those players, and I don't know, I just really like them like they're really entertaining. The jets are cool with me; they're definitely my second favorite team in that division, but anyway, moving on a little bit, first of all, the transformation from punk rock feminist to football writer sounds like quite a radical change uh but Not who really. were- my my head
1: my head's still half shaved, and I'm dying my hair pink later this week, so
0: <laughs> that's pretty awesome uh. Who are your inspirations? I guess both from a punk rock feminism perspective and also from a sports writing perspective.
1: You know, from a sports writing perspective, I did not do a lot of sports reading or sports writing when I was when I was younger. Um, you know, I would say like my first thing that my my first love of anything kind of sports related was professional wrestling, which I still love to this day. So that was my first thing was you know Sting and the Four Horsemen and Paul Heyman and uh, Medusa. and and people like that. And, um, in terms of, in terms of my feminist icons or whatever you'd like to call them, I, I, you know, some of these women are problematic in certain ways and there's issues with intersectionality of feminism and things that are really quite boring that I'm sure you and your listeners don't want to hear about.
0: We Um, talk about everything here. So
1: (laughs) but growing up, definitely, you know, um, People like, like Kathleen Hannah, who was the singer for Bikini Kill and, and, you know, even problematic as she can be Courtney Love and, and people like that, um, in terms of just writing in general, um, you know, I, 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 really like, uh, let's see, I read a lot of Martin Amos, even though he's a problematic author, problematic novelist, um, cause he's kind of misogynistic and gross, yeah. um, but Kurt Vonnegut, um, He's just probably my favorite author because all of his books are just so thoughtful and so readable and and entertaining and engaging and all of that good stuff. Um, But in terms of sports writers, I try to read just pretty much anything that I can. Um, You know, I, 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 I especially miss Grantland because Grantland was a place where there were a lot of guys, a lot of people who I read, you know, Bill Barnwell, Robert Mays that I could access all in one place and it's all just like simple and it's right there and I don't have to navigate through the entire world of ESPN.go.com go <laughs> com or whatever. So um so it's it's so I, I kinda lament that. Like I have to kind of dig, you know, and, and search for these people now. Um which I guess is just like first world problems, but, uh, but there are, you know, there are a lot of writers out there, a lot of sports writers who I really, who I really like and, and, and admire and, and um, you know, and, and kind of try to pattern my game around, you know, guys like, like Doug Farrar and, uh, you know, Chris Burke and, and people who can um, take the mundane, everyday business of the, of the NFL and make it engaging and interesting and informative and you come away learning something.
0: That's a really good ethos to have. I totally agree that, unfortunately, and it's a little bit annoying to have to find all of the Kremlin writers now that they all left. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I, I find Kurt Vonnegut really fascinating as a role model as well. And Courtney Love, fun fact, lives on my block right now. She does, and I've seen her walking around before. She is a I was about to say she's doing well, but she's I think she's doing okay. She's doing okay. I don't she's want still, I can't put myself still, in her head. She's still
1: alive out there, you know. I follow her on Instagram. She's still doing some glamorous things with some glamorous fashion designer types and stuff, so I'm not too worried. <laughs>
0: yeah. I she's doing her thing. Well, let her do her thing. Mm-hmm. In your experience as a female sports writer, I know that I've heard some horror stories, especially horror stories on social media Mm -hmm. from some of people who I talk to who are female sports writers. Uh, What do you think of the experience for female sports writers nowadays? Uh, Do you think that it's in some ways easier than ever to become a sports writer because information is so out there and it's not hard to have your voice heard? There are so many different outlets to write for. But at the same time, do you – have you had issues with maybe that overexposure? Yeah,
1: you know, I don't think it's um, – I, I definitely don't think it's as hard for women to get involved with sports media, you know, writing about sports, getting jobs as sports journalists. Uh, I think that that's really opened up a lot just in the past few years, and I think it's it's part of, you know, the kind of shifting of the guard, if you will, um, in terms of the way that we approach creating media, consuming media, you know, obviously – the way that it's, it's produced for the internet and for mobile and things like that. Um, and just how many voices can be heard at, at this, in this day and age. So I think it's a lot easier for women to get more more opportunities. But again, you know, as you said, the flip side of that coin is that while these outlets are more willing to hire women and employ women to write about football or baseball or whatever sport, um, there's still that, you know, pro-magnon uh, level of sports fan out there these men who don't respect any women's opinion especially on sports you know stick stick to the kitchen or whatever um and i've seen some terrifically horrific things being tweeted at other female sports writers um i don't really get a lot of that personally thank god um, I attribute that to a couple of reasons. One, I don't have a large Twitter following. Like I'm, uh, it's, it's somewhere under 6,000. And, you know, the more Twitter followers you get, whether you're a male sports writer, female sports writer, just anybody in general, once you start getting 60, 80, 100, 200,000 followers, you're going to get all kinds of freaks and weirdos to mean people, you know, as part of that. And, and it's just the more opportunity for them to come at you because there's more people there. But I think the other thing too is that, you just look at me and you know what I'm about. You know what I mean? I've I bleach my hair, half my head is shaved. I'm a woman who writes about football. What do you think my stance is on a guy like Johnny Manziel or a guy like Ray Rice? It's pretty clear. And if you don't want to hear it, you can just look, you can just take a look at me or do a little research about me and, and realize if you're, if you're all about what I'm about. Um, and, and so thankfully that is, um, especially when we are talking about Twitter, uh, really, uh, helped me not have to deal with some of the abuse that other people have. Comment sections, particularly back in my my time, a bleacher report just you know, so many reads, so many eyeballs on everything every day. The comment section is a whole other story. Don't ever read the comment, it's a cliche, but it's true. Don't do it. That's where all of that's I would say ninety percent of any abuse that I've dealt with um as a female sports writer, it comes from the comment section. So I mean I, I swore that off years ago. I learned pretty quickly that's not a place where you want to go.
0: <laughs> you know, you are so spot on about the follower thing. And yeah. I'm at a smaller level than you because I don't have six thousand followers. I'm at about two thousand a little over twenty one hundred. And even at that level, like there is a point where I was, like, in such a good zone where, like, everything I tweeted would get, like, one favorite, or like now, I guess it's called, or retweet or comment, and then there was a point where I reached, like, a threshold, and then all of a sudden, people were, like, angrily commenting back whenever i tweet anything that wasn't sports, yeah. and and then, thankfully, what happens is that, you know, you lose followers and you gain them, and then you'll break even as long as you're sort of true to yourself and Uh, don't stick to sports because sticking to sports is really boring. But one other thing that I noticed, and I want to hear your input on this. I was talking about it with Sigmund Bloom a couple of weeks ago on the show. I think that the Cro-Magnon ethos that you mentioned really rears its head more at women trying to be analysts of the game rather than reporting the game. I think that while they receive a lot of criticism, at least they have positions and they have opportunities to stand toe-to-toe. I think that, not to cross sports too much, but what we see with Doris Burke in basketball, where, I mean, by all accounts, by all objective accounts, she's a phenomenal analyst.
1: Yeah.
0: Um and yet she receives so much pushback anytime she is a color commentator on the game. I There's definitely a stigma there that's different, and I'd be interested to see if you experience any difference when you're, say, just doing a game story or just reporting on news as opposed to when you're analyzing what went wrong in terms of reaction. You
1: know, I, I haven't gotten a lot of uh, blow back on that. But again, I think it, it just is the nature of the narrowness of, of my reach at this point. Um, but I do agree that I think that the most hostility is reserved for women who are doing things in sports media that are traditionally male, if you will, you know, color commentating analysis. There's not a lot of pushback on, you know, the pretty blonde on the sideline or whatever. You know, the only pushback on that is when these idiot men are like, I think she's getting a little old now. We've got to get someone younger. She's ugly now or whatever. You know, all these stupid things these, these people say. Um, but I do think that the bigger, the bigger blowback is definitely on, on against women who are doing things that are more traditionally considered male roles in sports media. Um, and the only way to combat that is to just give more women those positions who deserve them and just, you know, get used to it. And eventually, you know, I mean, there's always going to be people who are going to be harassing and complaining and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's Twitter, it's the internet, it's, that's the, like, the law of the land, essentially. But I think that, um, you know, with, with more of it being normalized in our society, our sports media society, that some of that, I think, will, drop off a little bit but it'll never completely go away because I mean fan is short for fanatic and these these people are coming at men and women all I mean you, Matt Miller in a bleach report I mean the things I've seen people say to him on Twitter would just blow your mind with just how borderline criminal essentially some of these things are you know so I think you're always going to get that but um, yeah I do think there is some you know some blowback against well there's only specific roles in sports media for women and and uh, as long as that, you know, that continues to change, I think that it will calm down a little bit, but you're always going to have morons. I mean, it's, it's, it's how it works.
0: I mean, if I recall correctly, and I might not be, I think that someone once tweeted at Matt that he hoped that his family would die in a car crash. Yeah, it was something like that. I remember that, that, incident, like that incident where someone tweeted that and Matt was just like, no. and I, I think Matt just said, fuck you to that guy. Yeah. And I was like, good for Matt. Like, Matt Miller is one of the nicest people in the industry. I am a huge Matt Miller supporter. So I have nothing but love for the guy. I think that he does really, really good work and is very underappreciated by some. So I'm all I about should, Matt and, Miller. And
1: no one should ever be out there tweeting death threats to somebody because they disagree with somebody's big board. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what? Why? It's not – it's a big board. You know what I mean? Or it's a mock draft.
0: Yeah, like chill. Like, yeah. these are opinion pieces. None of us know what's going to happen. I mean, come on, you need to relax. I, yeah. People take things way too seriously. Yeah. Now, to end off this segment, just I guess, since you have more experience, uh, do you have any final words other than don't read the comments for those who want to be sports writers? Keep
1: writing, you know. Uh, write, write, write. Um, anything that interests you, write it, um, know the difference between your and your and your and their, um, you know, come off as intelligent, know what you're talking about. Um, it, you know, it, it's one thing to want to write or, or think, think that you can write and actually being able to write. I don't mean to be a uh, sound mean when I'm doing that, but it is a competitive field. You have to stand out. You have to make yourself distinctive and, Uh, you know, and, and, and I hate to be like, Hey, write for free. I would, I would suggest, you know, maybe write for free for yourself or just put some stuff together so you can, you have a body of work. So when a paid opportunity comes along that you can apply for, or someone approaches you about, you have something to back up that you're able to do this. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a strange world. Um, and it's, and, and it's as much about talent as it is timing and luck and, and making connections. So, you know, reach out to other writers, uh, we don't bite. Most of us are pretty cool. Some some people might be competitive, but I haven't met anybody who's been a jerk to me in this industry yet. Um, so just reach out, ask questions of, to other writers and, and, and just always always strive to to improve and, and recognize that, you know, this is this is a, a wide open industry that keeps getting wider. And uh, if you if you're good enough and you stick with it, those are opportunities will come.
0: My biggest advice that you didn't mention, because those were all really good points, find an editor. I'm and an just editor. have an experience where you write one longer story, something that you work really hard on and show it to an editor and see what happens. Because in my opinion, and I know that there are a lot of people who do really good work without having an editor go through their stuff.
1: Sure. I think editors
0: are some of the most magical people ever. Oh, absolutely. And I've been lucky enough to work with a couple amazing editors I'm going to give a shout-out to my guy, David Roth, who does the best sports writing in America. used work at SB Nation. He works at Vice now, and I've yep. helped written some stories for the classical. Uh, anytime he gets his hands on something that I've put together, he just makes it so much better. And I remember the right. first time yeah. I ever submitted to him was – I think it was a couple of years ago – I put my heart and soul in this piece about the Connecticut Husky football team after getting connected to him uh, through a mutual writer friend. And I put my heart and soul into it, and he's like, emails me back about a week after I sent it. He's like, hey, Ethan, you did a really, really good job, but I think you can make this even better. So why don't you make edits, your own time, there's no deadline on this, make edits, and then send it back to me, and we'll see what it's like. And then I made a whole bunch of edits on it. I pretty much like cut out because I tend to write really long when I write. So I I had another story that I said to him that was like 2,000 words on the FXFL. He's like, sorry, Ethan, nobody wants to read 2,000 words on the FXFL. (laughs) You have to cut this down in half. And it was just like, yeah, duh. I just wanted to write all these things. And I just feel like editors help you focus things so much better. And by the time those pieces came out, like, oh, they're so good. Like, things that I could not have done alone. So, my biggest advice is think of writing as a collaboration. And if you haven't gone through the whole vetting process with an editor before, uh, try it out. Find someone who's willing to take a look. Someone who's edited before. Someone who could really uh, enhance your stuff. Because I really do feel like that makes a difference. Connect with an editor. Because editors are willing to, like, help out. There are a lot of really nice editors on Twitter. Uh, So, that would be my other piece of advice that... You didn't mention, because all the advice you mentioned was also amazing. So
1: That's really good advice. Find an editor. I, I agree. That's good. That's good.
0: Yeah. So we're going to move on, end this podcast off of the stuff portion, uh, and we're going to talk about the Oscars, which is kind of funny because neither of us like movies very much, <laughs> <laughs> but we can still talk about the Oscars generally. I will say, I did see one movie this year, and it was the one that won Best Picture. I did see Spotlight. Spotlight uh, was very good. The one about the Boston Globe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I need I should, I should check that out because it's like I, you know, it's a journalism movie and I I'm,
0: I love all the presidents men, so
1: <laughs> if this holds up in that similar vein, then uh, I I probably pretty much enjoy that.
0: So, you did not watch a single movie this year?
1: No, I mean, I I've I've watched movies this year, but it's mainly been The Godfather 1 and 2 <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> But well, I haven't watched anything that was made in 2015.
0: So you think. weren't a Star Wars fan? You didn't see Star Wars?
1: No, I'm not. I'm not a Star Wars person. Oh. It's, just ne- it's never been my thing. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm in my 30s. I, I should. I should dig it, but it's not my thing.
0: So what are your movie things then? Other than The Godfather?
1: It, 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 you know, my movie taste is sort of all over the place. It's like Godfather. I really like Casino. Um. Then it's you know it's like other stuff it's like desperately seeking Susan and like Heather's and um, reality bites just and like seriously my movie tastes are like all over the place Natural Born Killers, uh, Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs it's 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 all over the place
0: yeah it's,
1: it's not any specific genre
0: that that is pretty all over the place. I- I will say that The Heathers is an interesting one to bring up, because that is one of the most interesting takes on bullying that I've ever seen.
1: It really is. It really is. And it's really, it's really hilarious. It's a really nice, like, there's some good satire in there.
0: It kind of reminds me of, like, Carrie, except Carrie's a little bit more intense, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, a little, a little bit more intense. A little bit. Um. So I don't know. Did you follow along with this controversy at all, the uh, Oscar so white controversy?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I I don't watch the movies, but I uh, I watch a lot of you know news, read a lot of news. You know, um, you know, I think it's I think it's a relevant point. I mean, it, it's you know, it's a there, there's an institutional um process that you know results in black actors not getting these choice roles to begin with. And then even when they do not be, you know, being overlooked by, by the Academy. And I think that's a problem. I think that's a very significant problem with Hollywood. Um, But like Chris Rock and a lot of others have pointed out, it is kind of interesting that all of a sudden this year, you know, now everybody is, you know, Oscars so white and boycott the Oscars and all this stuff. When this has been a longstanding problem in Hollywood. And I'm not saying, Oh, you know, because it's been a long-standing problem, like oh, you know, what took you so long? Who cares? But it's just—it is interesting to, to, you know, think. Okay, this is the year that it was a problem, not any previous years where this is this has happened numerous times. You know, this is not um, uncommon. It's more common than not. Um, but I, you know, I, I I can't I I understand raising awareness about it, and especially with you're dealing with a a, a racial situation in this country and 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 problems with with racism that have really been um far more you know in the public eye in the past year so i understand that this would kind of be an extension of all of that as well the you know the overall kind of zeitgeist of of the situation of race in america right now um but yeah i so i I think i think it's i think it's, it's useful i mean hollywood's its own little bubble and it's a it's a Aspect of society that doesn't, well, you know, millions of people go to movies and all these movies make millions of dollars. It's not a world that people like you and me are invited into, you know, it's a very insular world. Um, but at the same time, you know, the same kind of problems of institutionalized racism that occur in normal, everyday America, you know, are obviously happening in the entertainment industry as well. So I, I don't see a problem with, with pointing it out at all.
0: I will say, have you ever been to Hollywood? Or Beverly Hills?
1: No, I have not.
0: Those are weird pl- The People there are weird. I bet. It's, it's I bet. a strange scene. I remember visiting it when I lived in California. And we had a small experience in North Hollywood. And even... That was North Hollywood. That wasn't yeah. actual Hollywood. Even that was just a little bit jarring. Like, no one eats in Hollywood. Which yeah. is weird. Like, I remember I was hanging out on this set for this commercial... And we were hanging with one of the talent, and he was just like eating. I think it was like chia seeds, like literally these tiny, like little, like seeds just popping them into his mouth over and over again. And he, we were like, "Dude, what are you doing?" There's pizza right over there because we were all it's getting a whole pizza.
1: Craft services. What are you? Why are
0: you- <laughs> yeah, and he's like, "Got gotta stay thin. You know, I got, gotta gotta have these abs." I will say he had amazing abs. Like, he oh, had, like, okay. a 10-pack. I was like, good good for you, dude. But that's the pressure that a lot of these guys are under. And this actor actually was black. And I'm guessing that it was even harder for him. I mean, I think that there's some really good things happening right now. Like, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. No, I haven't seen it. So that. that does a really good job of subverting the tropes. And they were saying in, in that show that they consciously wanted to cast – an Asian bro love interest because it's not a stereotype that you often see, but, and the creator of the show, Rachel Bloom, who's brilliant, you should check out her YouTube videos because she's really funny, yeah. was saying, you know, when I was growing up in school, I knew a lot of Asian bros and they're not represented at all in the media. Yeah. Can you think of any? And she's totally right. Like, why not go for that? That was someone from her life. Uh, but yeah, I think Hollywood has a bit of a stilted view of, the rest of the world taking it a step further though i have a hotter take that came to me as we were talking award shows are dumb and we should stop having them i think that if we got rid of the oscars would anything change in terms of how we perceive movies because i honestly think that it might normalize to a degree the reactions from these movies and maybe in like the collective memory Like, let's say, for example, there's no Oscars in this parallel universe I just created. Okay. And uh, a movie like, I don't know, Selma is released into the world. And Selma was, by all accounts, an amazing movie from a critical perspective, but didn't get nominated, didn't get recognized for many Oscars. I feel like if we didn't have the Oscars, that movie would have more cultural impact than it does now, because so much of the controversy has bubbled up into this general anger about this one award show, you know? Well,
1: yeah, that... I guess you know if something isn't nominated for an oscar then is it actually quote-unquote good and yeah. if it and, and is it important quote-unquote important if it's not nominated and so it takes that uh, uh, uh you know the aspect of oscars equals important out of the, the equation and then you can just have movies that are important or movies that aren't important and i do get that i understand the the desire to kind of take you know you kind of take the award out of the equation and you get something different out of it but come on this is hollywood <laughs> it's award shows. That's what they do. <laughs> like
0: for, turning back to football, do you think that the MVP award is necessary anymore? Do yes. you think that we need? So you think that we need to know every year who the most valuable player was, even though that most valuable player is chosen by a completely arbitrary set of standards? Well, as
1: a voting member of the Pro Football Writers of the <laughs> America, yes. I like their being MVP.
0: <laughs> All right, that's fair. Last one. All right. And this one I think will be a little bit more discussion-oriented. Should we have a Pro Bowl?
1: No. No. No, we shouldn't have a Pro Bowl. It's a waste of money. Uh, it's a waste of money for the NFL. It, they think they're getting eyes, but they're not getting eyes. And every year they get less and less eyes on it. And Roger Goodell gives some speech where he's disappointed about the Pro Bowl. And, you know, and, and I've watched a little bit of it this year. And the level of competition was at least better than it was last year, which was just probably the worst Pro Bowl I've ever seen um, in terms of the fact that I've watched maybe 20 minutes of it, is it. Um, I think we should get rid of the Pro Bowl. Um, for the same reason why I think that there should be two preseason games and they shouldn't add any more regular season games cause, and, and, and I'm with the players on, on not wanting to play Thursday nights uh, because of you know, player safety. What's the point? What's the point of the Pro Bowl? Why are you going out there? You know what I mean? Like, And, and I understand the, the, there's a flip side to this though where there are incentives, there are contract incentives and, and salary cap ramifications and, and, and things like that that go into it uh, which would make Eliminating the Pro Bowl, I think, very difficult to do. Uh, in terms of, you know, I think that some player, player agents, some NFLPA uh, pushback on that. Just, just from a financial perspective, of players who earn bonuses going to the Pro Bowl and all of that. Um, but I just don't see the point of it, especially because it's not a competitive game. You don't want to see any players go out there and, and play full speed in the Pro Bowl anyway because you don't want to get hurt. And it's already at the end of the season when your body's already worn down. I would like some kind of like skills competition, like some stuff they, they do at like the NBA, like all-star weekend. I would, I would prefer something, something like that where they can kind of have fun and have these little skills competitions and stuff like that. I think that'd be more entertaining.
0: As long as they don't play flag football in sand.
1: Nope, can't do that. that that's that that's how Robert Edwards
0: lost his career. Yep. I'll, I'll yep. be okay. Uh, but, I mean, in my mind, the reason why the NFL has a Pro Bowl is because every other league has an all-star game. Mm-hmm. And the NFL is different than every other league. The NFL shouldn't need to have an all-star game, man. Whatever. That's just take for another time. We just had a meta-discussion on awards to end off this wonderful podcast, which I thought went really smoothly, talked about a lot of great things, Andrea Hanks, thank you so much for joining, and we'll definitely have to have you on again soon. Yeah, absolutely,
1: you know, we've got got the draft coming up, and and, and all that, so there's going to be endless opportunities to talk about the NFL, and if you ever want to talk pro wrestling sometime, I can do that too. (laughs) Yeah, pro
0: wrestling, I have to say, I've never been super into pro wrestling, I watched it a little bit, because my friends sometimes watched it growing up, but... I don't know. It's, it's never been my thing. But maybe I'll have to just, like, get some sort of cage match going on with a couple of other people who love talking about pro wrestling. So we'll see. Maybe that will happen in the future on this show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next week, we have a really special guest. I'm super excited. You'll get to hear who she is on Twitter later. Uh, but for now, Ethan Hammerman signing off. Have a good one. All right, that was great. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, that was
0: awesome. That was awesome.